0: I'm Len. I'm, I'm Pastor Mark's older but more handsome brother, okay? <laughs> and uh, it's great to see all of you here for our weekly Christian family reunion where we celebrate God. If you're visiting for the first time, oh man, we are so glad that you're here. Please come back. We want you to be part of the family, okay? And please stay for the food afterwards. Alrighty. now as I introduce the message for today, be be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'll read it later, but but right now, let's go right into the introduction. So Christmas is big business in America, isn't it? Anybody disagree with that? So this year I read that uh, it's forecast that Americans are going to spend close to a trillion dollars on Christmas. That is really hard for me to believe, but. That's what it said. With the result that, instead of peace on earth, we've got chaos in all of the aisles. Okay? And uh, yeah, a song by the Christian singer Carmen describes the season, the season in America. And I'm not going to sing it, I'm just going to recite it like a poem, okay? And so it goes like this. Dashing through the mall, two bags under each arm. Push, push people, watch them fall, showing my Christian charm. I finally get outside and to the light of day, while searching for my keys, I found my car's been towed away. I bought a Christmas tree, jammed it into the trunk, no doubt, turned the corner coming home, the stupid thing fell out. I had to trim my house, but of course it rains and snows. While putting up the twinkle lights, I fell and broke my nose. Oh, Django bells, Django bells. My bills have got so large. I owe the next four years of my life to MasterCard. Django brains, Django brains, this holiday's a sham. Lord, was this the way it was way back in Bethlehem? Isn't that a great song? Okay. (laughs) So the American Christmas experience is distracting from the real meaning of Christmas. Some people are worried about what to get so-and-so for a present. Other people are are feeling guilty because they can't afford to buy any presents. Some are worried about getting kissed by grandma. Others are worried about spending time with that weird uncle. Others are facing a lonely Christmas through death of a loved one or a broken family. For some, the season is a time of light, joy, and excitement. For others... It's a time of darkness, sadness, and pain. The American Christian, or Christmas experience is distracting. Also, distraction is dangerous. It causes us to miss what we need to see, know, or do. The Blue Angels are the crack flight demonstration team of the United States Naval Aviation. The pilots are seasoned veterans who practice their craft constantly. They must, because a mistake in their arena can be deadly. But distraction can even trip them up. At the end of their demonstration in Cedar Rapids, just a little way north of here, in 1970, distraction struck. While landing in a stream of, of four aircraft, with three Phantoms rolling down the runway, Number four was getting ready to lower his landing gear when he heard Blue Angel number one say that he was having a hard time stopping at the the end of the runway. So he looked up to see what was going on. And in looking up to see what was happening, distraction caused him to forget a critical part of his checklist. He landed with the results because he forgot to put his landing gear down. So besides ruining a perfectly good aircraft, Distraction can, is costly in other ways. Distraction can get us lost. We can be lost spiritually or physically without even knowing that we're lost because we're distracted. Distraction can cost us our lives physically, spiritually, and eternally. So, in the midst of another Christmas season, are you distracted? In the midst of life, job, money, kids, pain, are you distracted from what is really important? So a goal in our Advent series is to bring us back to the meaning of Christmas by focusing on the miraculous and mysterious incarnation of the Son of Heaven as Jesus of Nazareth. What's so important about the incarnation of Jesus, you might ask? Well, the big ideas of these three sermons show some of the important implications of the incarnation. Two weeks ago, the big idea was the Son of Heaven became man to reveal himself to us so we could know the truth. Last week, the big idea was the Son of Heaven became man to experience and model life for us. And the big idea for today is the Son of Heaven became manned to make dead sinners alive, purely by grace. The Son of Heaven became manned to make dead sinners alive, purely by grace. So the central passage today is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. But I'm just going to read verses 4 through 7, which is the kernel of this whole passage. The Apostle Paul wrote this. Father, thank you for the mysterious and miraculous incarnation of your Son, the Son of Heaven, who, being God, became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. We pray, help us to set aside the distractions of the season or our lives and enable us to comprehend more deeply and, and marvel at the impact of His incarnation. Teach us. Changes to me to be more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. So the outline of my message is this. First of all, we're going to look at his mysterious and miraculous coming. Then we're going to look at, look at his life-giving, grace-dependent result of his coming. And finally, our grace-motivated response. So his mysterious and miraculous coming, a life-giving, grace-dependent result. And our grace-motivated response. So let's take a look at his mysterious and miraculous coming. The Son of God came in the mysterious and miraculous incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, incarnation is not about carnation flowers. It's not about carnation instant breakfast drink. It is the act of God, act of God the Son, taking on himself a human nature. While he remained what he was, fully God, he also became what he previously had not been, fully human. So the coming of the Son of Heaven as Jesus, the Son of Nazareth, wasn't as a mystery. So let me tell you a little bit about this story. I'm using an adaption of an article written by Don Baker way back in 1981. Okay. So thousands of years ago, the Christmas story began in Eden as a vague, mysterious an impossible promise. Humanity had just rebelled against its creator, and, it, and all its hopes and dreams were shattered. The human race in the person of a lonely, confused first husband and wife found itself imprisoned by its own disobedience to God. The brilliant noonday sun of closeness with God, with all its warmth, And illumination had just set in their lives. And in its place was fear, cold, impenetrable, dark. God's enemy, Satan, had just achieved his greatest victory. Man and God were separated. In this awesome, confusing moment, when heaven groaned, God whispered a promise. The promise was vague, obscure, mysterious, Yet it became the first whispered promise that someday, somewhere, somehow, God was going to send a deliverer. God did not name him or describe him or even indicate when he would come. He simply said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his his heel. Someone's son, just a son... But from that moment on, people began to look forward to the fulfillment of that promise. Thousands of years of silence followed, but 4,000 years ago, God whispered again, this time to a man named Abraham. And some of the promises God gave Abraham were that God would make him a great nation and that all the world would be blessed through him. Through the next 600 years, Little tantalizing bits of information were revealed. A man was coming, the Messiah, and he was going to be born into the family of Judah. He was the star of Judah, the lion of Judah. But when, where, how? No answer. A sun, a star, a lion, a ruler. Not much to solve a mystery, but enough to make people look and dream. Yet no one could imagine the thing that God was preparing to do. Almost 3,000 years ago, the prophet Isaiah saw the coming ruler, yet did not know his name, nor his birthplace, nor when he would be born. But he wrote, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. A sun, a star, a lion, a ruler, a light, a child, a counselor, a prince, a king, God who lives and reigns forever. What a promise! But what a mystery! And the mystery grew. Not only was he a king, but a suffering servant. Isaiah again wrote, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So a son, a star, a lion, a ruler, a light, a child, a counselor, a prince, a king, God, a suffering servant. And even more confusing was Isaiah's statement that this God was going to be born just like any other baby. And yet unlike any other baby, to a virgin mother, an unknown woman a son, a star, a lion, a ruler, a light, a child, a counselor, a prince, a king, God, a suffering servant, a little baby. What a mystery. 2,000 years ago, God revealed the mystery to us in the New Testament. An angel speaking to some angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto us, or unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The incarnate Son of God came as Savior. And Jesus said about Himself later, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save the lost. And the Apostle Paul added, But when the right time came, God sent His Son who was born of a woman and lived under the law, God did this so that he could buy freedom for those who were under the law, and so we could become his children. So at the right time, God sent his incarnate son to redeem us. But how could he do that? How could he deliver us? Well, according to the scriptures, the deliverer would have to be crushable, breakable, able to die. In other words, he had to be human, Yet he had to be worthy to pay for the sins of the whole world. He had to be God. That's incarnation. There's no other way to save people. And what was the result of his coming? Besides revealing truth and experiencing and modeling life and forgiving sins, he also did this. He brought a life-giving, grace-dependent result. This incarnate Son of God made it possible for dead sinners to be made alive. And that takes us to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 again. We will find that this life-giving result happens purely by grace through faith. And it's good, and it's for good works in God's glory. Remember Charles Dickens' classic, The Christmas Carol? Imagine Ebenezer Scrooge was trapped in greed. But he was warned by a visit by three ghosts. Who were they? Who were the angels? The ghost of Christmas? The ghost of Christmas? And the ghost of Christmas? Future. All right, yeah. Well, through the Apostle Paul's words, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, that is, is visiting us this morning to tell us about our past, our present, and our future. He will remind us of the amazing depths of our death and sin. He's going to remind us of what the heights of our present in heaven with God. And, and he's going to remind us of the amazing wonder of our future that awaits us in Christ. Amen. So what does the Holy Spirit say? First of all, the Holy Spirit says of our past, remember the amazing depths of our spiritual death. We were dead in the graveyard of sin. But an apostle Paul wrote in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins of which you you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The spirit reminds us of four things of our past. We were dead, trapped, Under God's wrath and unable to change. What a predicament. Paul said we were dead. We were D O A, spiritually dead, unresponsive to God, detached from functional relationship with God. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually and became by nature a sinner. When we were born, we inherited his nature. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. And we were born sinners, and we sinned. Because of being dead spiritually, we willfully disobeyed and ignored God. But there's more. We were trapped and enslaved in sin by three forces, the world, Satan, and the flesh. Three enemies. But it's even worse. We're under God's wrath. We were under God's wrath. By our human nature, again, we were sinners, and we sinned, and we were under his wrath. That's a terrible thing to be under God's wrath. Now, on the top of it all law, we were totally unable to change the situation. While not as bad as we could be, we definitely were as bad off as we could ever be. Unable to satisfy God's standard. And we didn't even want to, we were not able to. We were dead. Now, when I was little, I, I, I watched Superman on black and white TV, okay? And I wanted to fly like Superman, so I would get out in the backyard and I would jump as high as I could, hoping that somehow I could break the bonds of gravity. No dice. It didn't work. Now, high jumpers today can get up to 8 feet. Pole vaulters can get up to 20 feet. But no one can ultimately escape the bonds of gravity. Now, suppose gravity is sin. It's the same thing. There's there's no way by our efforts that we can escape the bonds of sin. If we are going to get an artist's rendition of what our, our life is like at this point, we'd take a white canvas and just paint it all black. That was us back in those days. But there's good news. Instead of Scrooge's ghost of Christmas present, let's hear what the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says of our present, remember the amazing heights of our new life in Christ. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this turn of events from the depths of death To amazing height involve amazing life, amazing grace, and amazing works. First of all, amazing life. We went from the graveyard of sin to the glory of heaven. Remember our situation again? Dead, no hope. But then Paul wrote wrote about God. But God, who was rich in mercy and great in love. Aren't those words the answer to all of our problems? To all of our situations, God is rich in mercy and great in love. No matter what situation we find ourselves in now, there is hope because God is rich in mercy and great in love. What did God do? Well, he made us alive with Christ and he raised us up with Christ and he seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. Well, there's a lot of mystery in all that, what that means. But at least it involves the total reversal of our past situations. We have new spiritual life, an open relationship with God. We're able to respond as if we were sitting next to his throne. But that's not all. This new life involves all the blessings that we read about in chapter 1 of Ephesians. And that's just amazing. But not only do we have new spiritual life in Christ, we are freed from the enslaving power of the world, the devil and the flesh. Now think of a hamster in a nice cage, okay? He enjoys his cage, but he looks outside and he sees freedom. And he wants to escape. So what does he do? He decides to run for it. So he gets on his wheel and he starts running. And he runs faster and faster and faster. But guess what? He doesn't get anywhere, does he? For the hamster to find freedom, he needs to find someone who is bigger than him to go into his cage and grab him out of that cage and release him to freedom. We're like that hamster. We're trapped in sin and we need someone bigger than us. And God is a lot bigger than us. And he can grab us out of the, the depth of our sin and death to new life, seated in heaven with him. What an amazing change. From death to life, spiritual corpses in death valley to alive with Christ in the heavens. But our deliverance from death to life also involves amazing grace. How did we get up there? Paul says, through amazing grace. He wrote, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves or of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. So our deliverance from death to life is based on God's grace. God's rescue is purely an unmerited gift. Now when I'm driving my car, my attitudes, various attitudes, show the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. When I'm driving down the road and someone cuts in in front of me or speeds by me, I want justice. I want them to get a ticket. But when I'm speeding, I want mercy. If he stops me, I want just a warning. Okay? And if that doesn't work, if he stops me and gives me a ticket, I want grace. I want him to pay for it. Ever seen that happen, okay? Already. So that's the difference. Grace is an unmerited gift. But second, not only is, is this, our change due to grace, our deliverance is not through our works. Nothing we can do accomplishes this, this change. And third, our deliverance is through faith, which is the bridge, the conduit, the hose, the highway for his grace to come to us. H.C. Charles said this, Our deliverance from death to life is not by our works, so that it will be all of grace, so that it will be all of God, so that it will be all for his glory. That's true, isn't it? The amazing heights of our deliverance from death, including amazing life, amazing grace, but also amazing works. What should this amazing grace lead to in our life? Amazing works. In verse 10, Paul writes, For we are his, that's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, having been, alive, having been made alive spiritually, we are under the work of an amazing artist who creates amazing art. Just look at it, the beauty of a sunset. And when God is done with me, when God is done with you, we are going to be more beautiful than a sunset. No matter how worthless, no matter how ugly you feel about yourself or your life, if God has made you alive from the dead, your story is going to be better than Cinderella's or Captain America's. And Not only is he an amazing artist, he he intends for his art to do something. Uh, Good art accomplishes good things, that's what he wants for us. Your artist, the one who is painting you and your life story, has plans for you right now to do good things. If you want to know what those good things are in the context of what he's saying here, just read chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians. How we're to respond and relate to each other in the church with harmony and grace. Love, holiness, service, truth, and genuineness. So do you get discouraged because you think you're worthless or insignificant? We've all been there, because we're all broken. But if we're in Christ, those feelings are a pack of lies. You are alive, and the master artist of the universe is making you into a trophy. Trophy artwork that accomplishes good things and glorifies him. So we started with a black canvas, and maybe now it's kind of like... from God's perspective, we're a white canvas now. But from our perspective, we're not there, it doesn't seem like. We're kind of like that black canvas with a bunch of white paint splattered all over it. As, as the incarnate Christ transforms us into his image. More and more, the white is showing. But we've got a long way to go. So that's great. But the best is yet to come. There's one more message from the Spirit about our future. And that's the Holy Spirit says of our future, Remember the amazing wonder of our future in verse 7. All right, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Why why is it going to be a wonder? We're going to be trophies of his grace. To God, we are his rich inheritance. We are his displays, his trophies of his grace. You and I are his, and we are part of his riches. Amazingly, he who created the universe so with all his riches, considers you and I his riches. That's a wondrous mystery. So we are his trophies of grace, but not only his trophies of grace, we're going to experience that grace, his grace, forever. In an unfolding experience of the riches of his love, mercy, and kindness forever. So we started off with a black canvas. Went to a canvas splattered with white. Someday it's going to be this beautiful white canvas, where, or perhaps maybe it'll be something like this, where God is painting the miraculous, mysterious story of your life on that canvas for His glory and our good. So, what does incarnation have to do with all this? Well, heaven came down to earth so that we could go to heaven. Without the incarnation, Dead sinners could never be made alive by grace, through faith, for good works and for God's glory. Without the Incarnation, we would not be savable. Without the Incarnation, the canvas that was originally white and then became black would still be black. How should we respond? The Incarnation made it possible for us to escape from death to life. So what? What? Well, first of all, marvel. Marvel at the incarnation of uh, the Son of Heaven who made who, who, and what he accomplished for us. Colossians 3, verse 1 says this. And if then you have been raised in Christ, with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. So make that the focus of the season. Make that the focus of our lives. So marvel at the incarnation and what it accomplishes. But also consider, consider without distraction your past, your present, and your future. Concerning your past, you can escape the death of life in bondage to sin and under the God's wrath through faith in Jesus. When you do this, there's an instant transferal from spiritual death to spiritual life, from the graveyard of sin to the glory of heaven and Christ. But experiencing that change, it's going to take forever to experience what all that means. So consider your past. Come to Christ. But remember this also. Remember that your past is becoming your present and will become your eternal future unless you let God, through the incarnate Christ, save you from your sin and death. That's a great Christmas present just waiting for you. Now consider your present. Your present can be the experience of life from death. Even in the midst of great suffering, no matter what your past has been, no matter what you're going through now, your present can be full of life and good works in Jesus. That's a great Christmas present also. Now concerning your future, all of us, either have or, or will suffer great pain, great heartache, great loss, depression. But remember, your coming future in Christ when you experience the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine a better Christmas present than that? There is none. There is none. So all of this is because the Son of Heaven became a man to make dead sinners alive purely by grace. So don't let distraction distract you from what is really important. Joy to the world. The incarnate Son of Heaven has come to give life from death. What a Christmas present.